Hello everyone, it's August 3rd, 2021, so Nauka got up to no good as soon as it arrived at the ISS, thinking it could take the station for a spin and the other modules weren't having it. If I didn't know any better, I'd say Nauka was the Russian word for trouble, so let's get into what happened up there and lift off. Of the tower. Welcome to episode 319 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Dennis. And Ben's off this week. Uh, he's on a little vacation. I think he said he'll be out of town. Very well-deserved break. Hope you're enjoying yourself, Ben. <laughs> yep. So what, uh, what other banter do we have? I didn't really think of anything. Well, I don't know too much to say about it because I've never used it myself, but Mike in the chat pointed out something pretty cool, which is... Uh, we talked about it briefly, but Orbiter becoming open source. Yes. And so maybe just a shout out to anybody who has either used Orbiter or is interested in, you know, spaceflight simulation uh, software. Uh, but now uh, this Orbiter, which has been around for ages, although according to the Wikipedia entry, uh, they've only had a stable release uh, for about four years now, uh, four, five, four and a half. And uh, but yeah, it's now open source. And so all sorts of cool stuff's gonna i'm sure be popping up there and improvements to the code and you know once you kind of unleash things on the internet you know it's it's pretty wild mm -hmm. so before it was open source it was obviously closed source and who owned it like or what was the purpose of keeping it closed source i mean so the person uh so uh martin schweiger uh is the the person who uh basically developed it created it it's his uh thing but it's um Evidently, I guess it was just a matter of, you know, it was his code, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he would edit it and he'd release it. Uh, I don't know if it was, uh, uh, evidently it's, it's licensed through MIT, but, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know if it cost money <laughs> originally or if it was free, but I feel like a lot of the times when you'd see people kind of messing around and showing us sort of, you know, uh, visuals of what was happening with different spacecraft, it was, uh, using Orbiter a lot of times. And so, yeah, okay, it's always been free, so. Yeah, I mean, definitely if you're interested, which, I mean, I feel like it's tough not to be interested in some of this. I know they got shuttle in there, so that's <laughs> that's got to be awesome. But, uh, yeah, uh, give it, check it out. So, Nauka. Um, yeah, wow. there was some news <laughs> surrounding that. Yeah, I don't know how scary they thought it was uh, back at Mission Control, you know, but mm -hmm. from what I've read, it sounds terrifying to me because, yeah. Uh, yeah. I did hear a line that basically um, they're like, so long as we have not exhausted all our contingencies, uh, we don't panic. You know what I mean? Like, so you, you wait until you're out of your, you know, your, your, your backup and then your backup, your backup and so on. Mm -hmm. Then, then it becomes time to panic. And so, um, that's what I had heard. But, but still, like, I mean, I don't know. I evidently you could, you couldn't feel like, you know, any vibrations or anything happening, you know, on orbit. Like, you know, the astronauts couldn't, uh, there's four astronauts and three, uh, cosmonauts on board right now. Or sorry, five astronauts and two cosmonauts. But I don't know. I mean, that was pretty quick rotation that was happening there, um, from Nauka firing its thrusters after docking. And I don't know. If you could, I mean, if they were just like noticing it, I mean, I'm sure the, com the computers immediately probably started screaming at them, but if they were kind of like just noticing in the window, the rotation of the earth happened, like changing pretty drastically yeah. compared to what they're used to seeing looking out the windows, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's if they were looking out the windows, but yeah, I mean, we're talking, well, I guess we should go over exactly what happened first. I mean, mm. we don't have too many details, but basically this is after Nauka was docked and I believe on the Russian side, they were 
they were doing some stuff software wise, like they were trying to get something linked up, and then yeah, all of yeah, a sudden yeah. the thrusters started firing. That's when they were notified by ground control. I don't think that they knew on station first, so I think it was actually you know ground mm-hmm. that knew first. Sure, um, sure. But the thruster firings were enough to move the station at a fast enough rate that you probably could look out the window and actually see, mm-hmm. you know, the Earth starting to change its orientation. It, yeah. I think it was, what, about like half a degree per second, I yeah. think is what they had said. And yeah. at that speed, like when you think of how big the station is, that means that at the tips, you know, like at either end of the station, that has to be, what, feet per second? You could do the math. Let's see. Half a degree is uh, 0.0087 two yada yada radians so let's multiply that by what would the lever arm you want to say what 50 feet 80 feet sure <laughs> let's do 80 feet 80 feet times that would be uh just about a foot per second about a foot per second yeah yeah so that that's order of magnitude maybe you know a, a good fraction of a foot per second or mm-hmm. a, a footish per second we've talked about station before as far as having to change its orientation and it's always something that's done very slowly over a long mm. period of time and mm-hmm. so when something like this happens it's like wow that must be imparting a lot of stress on you know the joints and little various trusses and like whatnot um, mm-hmm. it just sounds a little bit scary like something might you know come unbolted or whatever but that didn't happen yeah so so Colin's pointing out the integrated truss length is 357 feet so yeah so my 80 or so I was calling for would be basically uh, Nauka itself. But yeah, uh, it's distance from, you know, probably the center of gravity. The whole station is probably more like, yeah, 100 or uh, like maybe 200 feet or so. And so at least, yeah, so so your your instinct was right. So we're talking probably, you know, feet per second uh, motion at its fastest, which like you say, that's not something, yeah, you you might happen like a Hollywood movie, but that's not something they do (laughs) when they're controlling the station and moving it around uh, or orienting it properly. But that's, that's, that's one of the things that the, uh, their, their structural loads team is basically doing an assessment because um, you don't want this to happen. And plus, you know, Right. I mean, the, the station's modules connected to modules. I mean, there's the truss and then everything else is basically, you know, modules connected to modules. And if you ever play Kerbal, right, you know, that's where kind of your loads are the most, you know, that's, that's kind of like your, your weak points. You know what I mean? And of course, you know, where they're docked, they're, you know, they've made it so that it's strong enough to withstand, you know, these types of, uh, torques, you know, during rotations. But, but yeah, you had Nauka firing, you know, and then you had the, the gyros trying to offset it. That wasn't going to work. And so then Zvezda starts firing. And then after that, progress starts firing. So there's like different uh, phases and steps in terms of, you know what I mean? The different loads that are that are being uh, uh, put on the station. You know what I mean? Like before, when it was just Zvezda versus just Zvezda and or versus Zvezda and progress versus when it was just Nauka. Like, yeah, so th- there was a lot of that. And so they're definitely <laughs> going to want to make sure everything is A-OK. But, of course, NASA likes to emphasize that, you know, the astronauts were never in any danger at any point, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But it's, I mean, that's that's scary. But they they had their lifeboats, you know, ready yeah. to go. But <laughs> not that downplaying the <laughs> seriousness of this. Lifeboats on a spinning station. Um, yeah, it was basically like the station was in a tug of war with itself. Mm-hmm. Um, just being pushed and pulled in every which direction. Colin in the chat says that Nauka got to the party and immediately started a brawl. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's been some great memes related to this. <laughs> I haven't seen any yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, ben Hallert put in the chat the, uh, the It's Always Sunny uh, title kind of card. And so if you're a fan of that show, uh, the title card says, The Gang Takes Station for a Spin. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, there does seem to be a bit of a... Uh, uh, I mean, I think I'm comfortable saying that it seems to be misreported. 
that um, a number of uh, news outlets are talking about, you know, the station being, you know, basically tilted 45 degrees uh, from how it was, you know, intended to be aligned. Mm -hmm. And um, that makes it sound like, you know, okay, it rotated from, you know, where it was, which I'm guessing at this point it was still in that weird uh, inverted and sideways mode where basically the, uh, yeah, the Russian segments or, or the Russian orbital segment was aimed away from uh, the Earth towards Zenith. And so that way, the uh, what's normally the bottom of the station uh, is now aft, I guess. Aft, or, or, yeah. Sorry, not aft, but uh, retrograde. Is it, yeah, that's still aft, you're right. Well, yeah, facing retrograde. Yeah, yeah, I'm, th yeah. I'm thinking of yeah, which, which uh, point of view. I think of the Russian segment <laughs> as being aft within the station itself, but um, yeah, uh, in the retrograde direction. So, But anyway, uh, but thank you to uh, uh, Andy Z, who, uh, as you know, we've alluded to before, sends us a lot of great content via email. And uh, on Twitter, um, there was a really cool... Um, well, I mean, there's a lot of just great stuff on Twitter to check out. So if you haven't seen in particular, and I'm sure this isn't exhaustive, uh, Liam Kennedy, who uh, uh, basically does these, uh, well, he has a, a gadget that essentially shows uh, live views of the Earth from station. Um, he's not the only one there. We'll also have a, uh, a YouTube channel in the notes that's uh, really great, too, by uh, the YouTuber Apice, I'm thinking, A-P-A-I-S-S, -S, who has a, uh, a saguaro in there. Uh, their logo and so I'm, I'm loving that um but uh yeah so the the upshot though is that if you look at the telemetry that's given right from station uh that's not exactly secret a twitter user uh Hieronimo, uh at fs underscore Hieronimo, uh is their handle uh basically uh identified this uh gif on imager or imager that shows the station uh, basically how it would be wobbling around given uh, the telemetry that they picked up. And it's, it's a tumble. It's, it's, a, it's spinning, it's rotating, it's very, very complex, uh, this motion that was undergoing. And so, yeah, I mean, this was a wild ride, which was a good, you know, 40-some minutes um, worth of it. But, like, yeah, this, this wasn't just like, yo, it tilted uh, 45 degrees uh, relative to what it was supposed to. Now, this thing was straight up uh, gravitying. Yeah, so that's like a real tumble there. Yeah, and unfortunately, the um, uh, both, you know, Liam and Hieronimo uh, basically uh, weren't able to track down the source. It was basically kind of posted on a Discord server. And so um, we've been having trouble finding it. But if we if, if you know who created that video and we can or that uh that gif that animation uh we can definitely give them credit uh next episode um so let us know but we'll have it in the show notes and and we're seeing in the chat uh wow that is terrifying i mean really it's not going to do justice just hearing about how much tumbling this football field you know american football field sized <laughs> uh object you know with a volume the size of a mansion uh spinning around mm -hmm. with you know all the different various loads that must have been exerted on it while I was doing this and so just just absolutely wild ride yeah that is that is crazy Isn't looking. That something? we know that nauka is making uh these engine firings but i don't know exactly in what direction i don't know which thrusters are firing and where so i'm trying to get an idea of how it's moving the station that's a good question and and, and also something i hadn't really thought about but it's worth noting that you know uh, Zvezda is adjacent to it on the um, the Russian segment, as you can imagine, right? So it's the mm -hmm. first module, the core of the Russian segment. And then the Progress was the other one that also was firing to counteract it. And that's also on the Russian side. So you've got all of this happening on, you know, the one half on the Russian orbital segment, right? It's not as though uh, they were firing, you know, the Dragon or, you know, um, I don't think they have anything else on the American side that's docked that would be able to do anything. 
So, so I mean, part of this, among other things, is that you know, while this scary event's happening, right? Uh, the ISS has lost communication uh, to ground twice, apparently, right? Um, it does use Tedris to, for communicating, and at this point, it was over. Uh, what kind of uh, Kazakhstan and Western uh, China? So it was kind of you know in Central Asia at that point, and so um, maybe they still uh, had communication with uh, with you know uh, Roscosmos uh, ground stations. But um, I mean, as it's rotating, you know, sometimes your antenna wouldn't be able to go direct to ground in that case, and so um, it yeah, they basically had two uh, communication interrupts uh, during uh, this again. Uh, 40 some minute ordeal that, <laughs> you know, it's spinning around wildly. And, uh, evidently that was, uh, people were tweeting, you know, frantically while this was happening and shortly afterwards. Uh, I read from, yeah, so, uh, Joel Mont Montalbano. Uh, who's a, a, a NASA's program manager for the station. Uh, quote, uh, the crew did report seeing some debris. Some, I think I heard. They mentioned flakes or something. We believe that was from the jet firing. Uh, but at the same time, I remember hearing tweets that were allegedly from sources about Drew Fustel from the ground basically asking if they had seen any debris and him getting negative in response. So whether or not there was debris seen or it was seen and then just transient and like kind of went away, I mean, that's still... Again, that's not something you want <laughs> to mm -hmm. be happening up there. So if it's not from the thrusters, it could be little flakes that are coming off of the station as uh, there's various torques and stresses being put on certain parts of the station. So that would cause something to maybe come loose. But I, I mean, I don't think that there would ever be, you know, like any kind of large debris. I don't think that that's what happened. But yeah, there might have been some small bits of something or other, you know, just like mm -hmm. stuff that, stuff that might come off. Right. I mean, I'm just thinking of paint, and I, but I don't know how much paint is actually on station. I say that, but I don't even know, you know, uh -huh. if that's actually a thing, but it is on certain other spacecraft. So they had to reorient the station's like solar arrays in order to minimize the effects from the rocket plume, um, you know, because the exhaust might impinge on the solar arrays. Um, but I was thinking, mm. just as I read that, I, I was kind of thinking, well, how much of a problem is this going to be for the station getting power? Because, you know, those solar arrays are, you know, like aligned with the sun. Um, mm -hmm. But if the station's constantly moving around the way that it is, um, right. what would that do for power? Um, now, obviously, they're not like running on like a, a razor thin margin or anything. They have power. Right. They have, you know, they have batteries. But I mean, if it continues for too long, then, you know, that that's like a worst case scenario because then you're in an uncontrollable spin and you don't have any power to power the gyros. Um, so I guess you'd have to rely on the station's thrusters. But that's like, you know, I'm sure quite a ways down uh, the old crisis tree or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, they, they, right. I mean, they, they, you know, obviously can't get solar power. And, and right, it is worth noting, uh, at least some of those new uh, uh, IROSA arrays have been installed, um, mm -hmm. uh, which, right, they, they cover up the central parts of some of the solar panels, yeah. but they're much higher efficiency. And so it's, it's a net boost overall. But, but yeah, no, I, right there, they're not surviving, you know, the 90 minutes of uh, orbital uh, evening orbital night with you know 91 minutes worth of power yeah <laughs> yeah. Right they, uh, <laughs> yeah and so um one thing so i've got you know uh speculations right as you can imagine um there's there is uh some speculation happening here uh but uh i'm i'm happy to talk about this because uh anatoly zach who right he's the uh person to listen to um in the english-speaking world if you want to learn about what's happening in uh the the russian um space industry and and and, and roscosmos you know and so uh he he had tweeted that um uh nauka he was reporting that nauka had evidently burned all the propellant 
uh, available. And so that's basically how, uh, possibly how they were able to get to stop firing. Uh, uh, some people, right, you know, of course you can always refuel things. Ben uh, actually did a great job covering a lot of uh, uh, Nauka's trip to station and how it sort of hobbled up here or up there. Um, uh, last episode, 318, if you want to give that a check out. So uh, he had talked about how there's three uh, sets of uh, thrusters on uh, Nauka. And if I remember correctly, only the RCS thrusters in one orientation, I think, you know, presumably to give uh, station a bit of roll power, are, are meant to be, you know, used uh, in the future in the same way that, you know, Zarya can fire its thrusters. Because mm-hmm. remember, uh, Nauka is based on Zarya. So anyway, because because of how, right, we're talking about how it's sticking, you know, on the aft end of the station and kind of poking out down there, where typically, like, you know, only things sticking out that far would be progresses that are docking down there. It, uh, yeah, so it, that, that was my understanding, is that they only wanted to kind of uh, have it fired thrusters in that one direction, and so they can just refuel it in the future, so no big deal. It, assuming that it's not going to go haywire again. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe maybe you just want to <laughs> leave that off then. I guess until they fix that problem, they might, they might not want to put any more fuel in it. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> they might just yeah. do it all over again. <laughs> yeah, so, so kind of what's next? Um, uh, so we've mentioned that the structural loads team is doing an assessment of, you know, how this event affected the station, the Starliner launch, right? They, they've, they've had a lot of bad luck of their own design, uh, but now this was something uh, that wasn't their fault. But yeah, that that had to be postponed because, as you can imagine, uh, NASA's assets and resources are going towards uh, identifying this issue, solving it, making sure everything's safe on station before you start sending any more craft there, even if it is uncrewed. And so that's been postponed. We'll talk about that. That launch is coming up next uh, two or. The day this uh, episode drops um, is when it should be uh, nominally, or when they you know, they plan to launch it. As far as uh, what's next for uh, Nauka after trying to uh, take a station for a ride, um, there's going to be uh, up to 11 spacewalks needed uh, to fully uh, kit and uh, prepare the the uh, the module. And so the first two are planned uh, next month in September, and uh, we could link to it too. Uh, Ross Cosmos did a nice. Um, they had a nice video. I would recommend not unmuting it because of the music being a little silly. But they had a nice uh, video of basically uh, showing uh, Novitsky and um, Dubrov, I'm guessing, yeah, uh, Novitsky and Dubrov uh, going into into the module uh, after opening the hatch for the first time. After it was done, you know, taking the station for a spin. Let's just hope that no more crazy surprises from here on out. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it seems that this, you know, like Nauka... And it's just, you know, the cursed module. Very on brand. I think you've said that a couple of times. Like, yep, that's on brand. Yep, that's on brand. It just keeps on doing weird things, you know. It had a not a horrible ride to orbit, but um, there were some things that happened once it had made orbit, right? And then it had some problems with its antenna, I think. Um, we had just talked about it last week, and I've already forgotten. But, um, yeah, there's just, you know, it's just like one thing after another. And then they get it on station, and it just starts bucking like a bull. <laughs> So, since there's only two of us this week, let's just do two short and sweets. Why not? And Dennis, you can do the first one. (laughs) (laughs) Copy that. First up, Rocket Lab successfully launches U.S. military payload. In its first launch after a failed mission two months ago due to a faulty igniter system, the Smollett launcher performed a, quote, flawless mission last Thursday, placing a U.S. military research satellite to orbit on a flight initially slated for its new pad at Wallops in Virginia. Delays in certification of the Electron Rocket's new autonomous flight safety system was responsible for the relocation. This launch marked the company's eighth payload for a U.S. military or intelligence agency customer. 
the monolith demonstration satellite delivered to orbit will test the capability of placing large deployable sensors on 6U and 12U CubeSat buses, with the sensors making up a significant fraction of the spacecraft's overall mass. And then next up, Inmarsat announces plans to add multi-orbit satellite Constellation. The British satellite operator will add at least 150 LEO satellites to an already planned 5GEO and 2HEO spacecraft as part of their Orchestra multi-orbit Constellation. Orchestra seeks to improve latency, speed, and resiliency for the company's communication services across maritime, aviation, government, and enterprise markets. While Inmarsat has not yet obtained regulatory licenses to operate a LEO constellation, the company's CTO is confident they'll be able to get them given their existing spectrum of licenses in L, K, A, S, and other bands. The company is yet another player with ambitions of using a LEO constellation to address particular market needs. So, yeah, moving on to this week in spaceflight history. We have no winners this week, and there's a reason for that. As you might not be surprised to hear, because we've done this before, we picked the wrong date range, or we gave you the wrong date range, rather. What was it, the 27th? And I, and I, yeah, and I, and I appreciate you using the word we there, but it was really <laughs> me who's responsible for writing this part of the notes. And so, yeah, I had given uh, inadvertently the wrong range. I had said the 27th of July through the 2nd of August. But as you're listening to this, you might notice that that is in the past and not actually this week. And so David had picked the clue that is for this week and was like in the correct date range. But I had told you all to basically keep an eye out for an event that had happened last week. And so as a result, not a very good this week in space white uh, history range for me to give. And so I apologize for that. Uh, we did get some guesses that were basically awesome guesses where you really were matching the clue as best as possible to events that had taken place last week. But you know, none of them were the actual intended one. So I want to give a shout out to Chubby Dracosi and uh, Drew Treeb or, or Treeby uh, for uh, basically coming up with some really solid guesses. But uh, unfortunately, I made it uh, unanswerable <laughs> <laughs> unless you just kind of, I guess, pick the wrong range on purpose, you know, which is actually the correct range. Yeah, they tried their hardest to make the date range or to or to, to make the clue fit the date range. Didn't quite happen. But um, yeah, so what the event was, was the launch of Luna 24, which launched on uh, the 9th of August, 1976 from Baikonur. So yes, this was, you know, the last of the famous Soviet Luna program. And there were a lot of various missions that they had. I was actually just looking over them. I didn't realize it was this many. Now, right. this is now this was the last one. And it was also the last like sample return. And indeed, it was the last sample return until Chang'e, um, which just happened oh, last year. Although, David, I got to point out, though, that it actually isn't the last Luna. Luna 25 hasn't launched yet. It's actually supposed to launch this year. Oh, so they're still doing that. Okay, so this is a program <laughs> that's been going on for decades now. Um, now, I was going to point out that actually it did span quite a bit of time because it's not like the Apollo program, which was, you know, like a good solid 10 years or so. Um, mm-hmm. I guess like give or take this. Uh, uh, the Luna program started in 1958 and it, I thought concluded in, in 1976. So, but maybe, you know, it's still going on. I mean, it, it really did end after those 24, but they're still naming yeah. spacecraft Luna, so I'm kind of busting your chops a little, is all. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean that's still like you know a good what 16 years or so. So and they just launched all kinds of stuff, but they only had three sample return missions, or at least they only had three that were successful. Um, and this was the last one. So just to name the three others that actually did return samples, you had Luna 16, which was launched in 1970, uh, and that returned 101 grams um, of lunar regolith. So not much. None of these are a whole lot, or at least not compared to, you know, like what the NASA astronauts brought back, which was quite a bit more. 
um, in the hundreds of thousands of grams, I believe. And then you had Aluna 20, which was launched in 1972, and that brought back 30 grams, which is even less. Then you had this most recent one, uh, more I say recent, but it was in 1976, and that brought back 170.1 grams. So they had not a whole lot to play with there. In total, what is that, like 300 and something, I think. It's just interesting to look at how much the Apollo missions brought back, which was, I think, three... I want to say 300,000-ish grams, which I don't know why they're measuring it like that when it's in the hundreds of thousands. Like, how many <laughs> kilograms is that, right? Because it's 1,000 grams per kilogram. So, yeah, it's like 300 kilograms. So, getting back to Luna 24. Um, so, this was a pretty cool mission, though. So, it um, it reached the moon in three days. So, no surprise there. And uh, it had to make some uh, trajectory corrections, which um, amounted to a total of 130 meters per second delta V. So, that's how much they needed for course correction. And it went into a 115 by 115 kilometer orbit um, and it had a 120 degree inclination at that point it orbited for another five days before landing in Mare Crisium so Mare Crisium that's where the clue comes from uh, which was I believe luckily crisis was not avoided although yeah, I meant exactly. although I meant to say crisis was not averted because that's what the expression is you know you avert crisis although you can avoid it too but I don't know why I said crisis was avoided <laughs> luckily it was not averted because uh, they were going to the Sea of Crisis, which is what that means in Latin, or the Sea of Crises. It's actually plural. So yeah, that's where the clue comes from. I don't know if that would have been a good enough clue. I suspect it would have been because, you know, we pretty much always get correct guesses. That's if we give the correct date range, which is why I kind of suspected. I was like, oh, we haven't had any correct guesses. I think maybe we messed up because that's the only time that that happens, <laughs> pretty much, um, is yeah. if we mess up something. So yeah, it's orbiting the moon for five days. Then after that point, um, it reduces its Paraselenian or perigee, but the correct term is Paraselenian, to 12 kilometers on the 16th. And then on the 18th, two days later, it makes its final braking burn and it sets down in Monte Crisium. So just to go back, um, the landing site was chosen previously for two other missions um, that had failed. So going two missions back was actually uh, the Luna 23 mission, which was in 1974. And it was basically the exact same type of a lander. Um, it had landed, but then it fell over. Um, I don't know why. Oh, no. Um, that was not actually explained anywhere, and perhaps they don't even know why. Um, I, but I'm guessing it just, you know, didn't make a very good descent. Yeah. But what's cool is that the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter camera actually has images of this thing on its side on the moon. Like, you can actually see it, and you can see the bottom section and, you know, the top return capsule section. And it's just, yeah, it's exactly as they say. It's just like sitting on its side. So it tipped over or rather probably just landed sideways, which is not very good when the whole purpose of this mission is to collect a sample. And for that, you need a drill. And uh, the drill is mounted in such a way that it comes, you know, like directly down. And obviously, if it's making this downward motion, but it's on its side, it's not going to hit the ground. Plus, it wouldn't be able to launch anyway. But um, I just kind of have this comical image in my head of the thing trying to, you know, poke the ground, but it's not there. You know, like it's trying to, like, you know, kind of like, <laughs> because it just looks kind of like a big arm and it's kind of reach over, but there's no ground there because it's just a little bit tipped over. Kind of like a turtle that can't, you know, get itself right. back up again. So then after that mission failed, they had another one, which does not have a nice little name, like, you know, like Luna 23 or whatever. It does have some kind of a Russian designation. It's like a couple numbers and some letters. But that one... It just actually failed to reach orbit. It didn't even reach Earth orbit. So that one really didn't work. There was a problem with, I believe, the first stage of the vehicle. 
And that was in 1975. So, you know, these are just happening like in 1974, in 75, in 76. So they pretty much did a lunar mission for, you know, a good 16 years. They pretty much did one or more every single year. So they, you know, they were very big on the moon. So um, just a little bit of information about the spacecraft itself. Uh, the descent stage is 3.96 meters tall. It looks kind of like, as you might imagine, it looks to me kind of like, you know, a smaller version of the Apollo lander. It kind of has the same basic design. It has these hmm. four big legs that are, you know, kind of like outstretched because that gives it a wide base and then it kind of gets smaller as you get up towards the top of the vehicle. And it had a wet mass of 5,795 kilograms. Uh, then the ascent stage, which was mounted on top of the descent stage, obviously, just like the Apollo lander, um, that was a two meters tall and had a mass of 514 kilograms. And then the return capsule, which was really just like this little spherical looking type of a little things that sits on top that was 34 kilograms and very small it had a little return cabin inside of it that was just 50 centimeters in diameter so uh that's all that actually came back to earth yeah wow the ascent stage is tiny and that's kind of a cool thing because like when you think about something returning from the moon and how small it is you have to keep in mind this thing launched from the moon and came all the way back to earth or at least you know it got the return capsule to earth so like obviously you couldn't launch anything from earth that's that small and make it even to orbit but you can totally do that from the moon and uh, that might be one of the smallest i don't know what the chinese what their ascent vehicle looks like but that might be the yeah. smallest thing to ever leave a planetary body which would be a cool record yeah and, and the thing i thought like because when you when you said like the sizes right that's only mm -hmm. half or that's only half as tall as the descent stage right so that's a factor too. That's not that big a deal. But the descent stage, like you said, it's got that wide base. So the ascent stage is so much smaller than that that it's you know less than a tenth of the mass. And so that's kind of what makes it so tiny. It's like this little nub sitting on top of your pyramid, essentially. Yeah. Oh, and so one interesting thing, one last thing about uh, the Mare Crisium, um, which is kind of neat, is that it is a mass con. So this is a term I've never heard, mm. but I do know what it's referring to, which is, you know, how we all know that the moon has lumpy gravity, which is why it's kind of hard to put anything into a stable orbit um, around the moon just because of that. But a mass con, yeah, so that is a mass concentration. It's just a contraction. Um, I, I don't know if, if we've ever mentioned that term on the show, but if so, I don't remember it. I don't know if you've ever said it before, Dennis. I don't here. think we've ever been cool enough to call it a mass con uh, yeah i mean it's 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 kind of a cool sounding term a mass con so that just means that there's a lot of mass you know directly below the surface um i think it's just because well they don't know actually but and that's part of the reason why they wanted to put it there so i guess we can talk about the drilling mechanism on this lander since that's really the only thing that it can do is drill um, so this is called uh, the LB09 drilling mechanism, and LB stands for lunar drill. I think the Russian word for drill is like B-U-R, bur, so lunar bur. And this drill was actually improved over the previous two missions to the moon because this one was able to preserve the relative position of the soil that it collected, what's called the stratigraphy. And we had mentioned that before with other, you know, like return missions. And indeed, I think Changa did the same thing, obviously. Um, I'm kind of surprised that the, that the previous missions that they sent didn't have that capability because... I mean, you can still learn a lot, but it really helps to be able to tell, you know, what's at what depth as opposed to just having it all collected in one little bulb or free floating in something. I don't know, but, mm. you know, just having it all jumbled up. So, yeah, being able to preserve the stratigraphy is important. And um, this drill could also adjust its power depending on the soil density. 
Uh, so if they hit a rock or whatever, you know, they could change the power. So what would happen is the sample arm, which was kind of mounted on the side of the vehicle. And like, if you think of the bottom is, you know, more like towards the, you know, like the landing legs. And then, you know, the very top is being the head. The base of the arm is towards, you know, the very bottom of the spacecraft. And then the end of the arm is sort of like attached to its head. So it just kind of detaches in, then extends outward and then it drills down uh, into the surface. And it got about two meters. And so it has this um, hollow drill, which I imagine is how you uh, retrieve most soil samples that they do on the moon, Mars, wherever. Yeah, say you do coring. Yeah, think, coring, yeah. which I've never seen a, what I guess is called a coring drill. Uh, is that a name, a coring drill? But uh kind of works kind of like a router, I suppose. Yeah, I think um, like those are uh, like for climate science. They're, 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 they're really cool. And so, I mean, well, but like, you know, industry uses them as well. But I think the idea is that you've got the like these these teeth kind of around the... the the, at the, the circumference, end of the drill, yeah, yeah at the circ- around the circumference, and then it's you know hollow, so that way mm-hmm. you know you can go and have you know your sample fill that up. Yes, so it drills down, and then it collected the sample into a twelve millimeter tube, which twelve millimeters is not big, but I guess the tube must have been pretty thick because if you're talking about a twelve millimeter tube at two meters, right, and it has all the you know this soil, I would think that that would weigh more than one hundred and seventy grams. But maybe not. I don't know. And then from there, it's kind of like wrapped around a drum. And so it kind of looks like a spring, like if you imagine how, you know, like a shock absorber, kind of a spring-looking thing. That's actually what it looks like if you hold it. Um, there's mm. some pretty cool photos of a Soviet scientist holding the thing. And it kind of looks like he's holding a car part. That little drum with the coiled-up sample that is put into the return capsule. So the whole arm kind of, you know, comes back up and then it kind of touches its head. That's the return capsule. And then it sticks it in there and seals it up. And so from there, the ascent stage takes off, obviously, gets back to Earth orbit, and then the capsule is released and makes a landing in Surgut in western Siberia. I don't know where Surgut is, but or it's actually just 200 kilometers southeast of Surgut in western Siberia. So hmm. uh, way out in the middle of nowhere. So now the sample analysis, I think this is kind of interesting to talk about. So one thing that I inferred from, from what I read was that, um, and this kind of makes sense, and it's, again, kind of one of these things where you stuff that you never realized because you just hadn't thought about it. But when this lander landed on the moon, they knew where it had landed, but of course they didn't know precisely where it had touched down, right? Because there's no way that you can actually know that. Um, It's not as though they knew right down to the, you know, foot exactly where it had Ah, touched down, but they knew it was in the Mare Crisium. Um, So this affects the soil that they collect because, you know, that can change depending on exactly where it touches down. So they found that the soil sample or, you know, like the regolith. I feel weird calling it soil. It's not really soil, is it? But whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the regolith had higher amounts of titanium than they had anticipated. And the regolith was not as, quote unquote, mature as they had thought it would be. Um, and that means that it didn't show signs of having been exposed to space for as long as they had thought. And for a long time, they couldn't quite figure out why that would be because that didn't match with, you know, the observations that they were taking from orbit of the Mare Crisium. Um, so it wasn't until, and I didn't put the date in here, but like what, 2009, 10, 11, 12, when uh, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter took images of the exact landing site and it was found out that it was right at the edge of a big crater. So what they had gotten samples of was actually ejecta from the crater, not the actual soil that would be undisturbed. So they probably have, I guess, maybe a fair amount of, you know, something that was like further down or maybe the rock that hit the moon instead. Uh-huh. So maybe that's what they're getting there. <laughs> um, 
Interesting. But I thought, but I, I thought that was interesting because I would have just thought that they would know exactly where they put the thing down, you know. Mm-hmm. But when you think about it, how could they, and to what extent could you control the landing that you could, you know, avoid this crater and that crater? They definitely didn't have um, what was it called, terrain relative navigation back then. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. That was like not really a thing. Um, <laughs> and another interesting fact was that in 1978, so just a few years later, there was a Soviet scientific journal called Geochimia, it published a finding that the sample had about 0.1% water in the mass sample, or in the sample of the regolith. So 0.1% water in the regolith was actually, you know, pretty astounding. But what's interesting is that Western scientists didn't read Soviet journals, and so they didn't even know about this. The Apollo samples that were brought back were actually not considered to be reliable enough because of possible contamination, but they had, you know, like obviously done exam of these samples and they didn't find any traces of water. So the Soviet samples might have been or probably were the first evidence that there actually was water on the moon, which I think is pretty interesting. So the whole speculation on whether or not there was water on the moon, there actually was evidence, but it wasn't even you know brought to light in uh, the West until I think the 90s. <laughs> so um, huh. took quite a while you know before that happened. And then one other interesting fact is that one gram of this sample was actually swapped with the U.S. for you know a sample from an Apollo mission which I didn't know about. I didn't know that they had ever traded samples. Um, Hmm. That's kind of neat. It was just one gram, but it makes sense just because in the interest of scientific curiosity, they have something from, you know, this region of the moon, and then you have something from this other region of the moon. Exactly. So that's kind of cool. And then, yeah, and then from that point, uh, so that was the the last sample of anything from the moon until 2020, last year, until Chang'e. So, yeah, that was it. But, um, yeah, it's a pretty cool mission. And like I said, the last, I mean, for all intents and purposes, the last Luna mission, although, like you said, there's one coming up next year that I didn't know about, but <laughs> I mean, it's called Luna, but yeah, they're, uh, they're... it's not even, it's not even the same government at this point. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're starting fresh, but they're keeping the name. So that's your event, uh, Luna 24 in 1976, one week later than you thought it should have been. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry again about that, but awesome. Thank you, David. That's a uh, excellent analysis. Uh, and a recap of that uh, mission, which I did not know much about it. And we also now can, listeners, you'll hear us dropping uh, MassCon uh, nonchalantly, I'm sure, in the coming Yeah, MassCon. <laughs> well, thanks again, David. Uh, and next week is the 10th through the 16th of August. Do you have a clue for us on Ben's behalf? On Ben's behalf, yes. And we're sure about that, the 10th through the 16th of August. And yes, I'm, <laughs> and uh, Ben does have a clue for you. Um, it is in 1966, when I get hot, I get dizzy and lose my bearings. Yeah, so now we got the right date range. We got a solid clue. And so uh, if you think you know what that answer is, send us an email or tweet uh, at us with the hashtag ThisWeekSF. And good luck. Good luck. Moving on over to upcoming spaceflight events then, just uh, four events, uh, yeah. one launch out of those. So uh, if you're listening to this, uh, hopefully uh, Starliner just launched uh, nominally, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it's supposed to launch on August 3rd. And so on Wednesday, August 4th, uh, there will be coverage of the rendezvous and docking of the Starliner. And remember, this is the uh, OFT2 commercial crew vehicle. This is uncrewed. This is basically their second take at trying to check out all their systems. And they had all those software things that they needed to fix. but 
looks like, you know, hopefully they'll be good and ready to take care of that. And so this uh, coverage is going to begin again on August 4th, Wednesday at 10.30 a.m. Eastern with the docking scheduled at 1.37 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Yep. And then on the next day, on August 5th, is the hatch opening. Um, so, yep, again, yeah, they take their time. Yeah, we talked about this last week, didn't, didn't we, because it was <laughs> delayed. So we kind of know how right. this goes. Yeah. So, again, um, you know, the following day, they open the hatch. Since there's no people in there, why not take your time? The coverage of that begins on NASA TV at 8.30 in the morning, and then there's going to be welcoming remarks by the Expedition 65 crew at 9.40, um, and of course, this is all like Eastern Daylight Time, so you have to keep that in mind. All right. Yeah, and I guess at that point, we'll have, you know, even though they didn't all, this one's uncrewed, but we'll have a Soyuz, a Dragon, and a Starliner mm-hmm. all parked. So, wow. Yeah. That's pretty neat. A whole <laughs> mixed fleet. <laughs> right? Yeah. Mixed fleet. I like that. And then a few days later on the 9th of August, um, we have a, you know, solar system event with a spacecraft. So this is a Parker Solar Probe uh, Perihelion number nine. And so while you can't actually watch the event live or anything like that, uh, you can typically expect some good science and occasionally some nice pictures coming out afterwards. And so uh, this perihelion number nine, uh, it's its second uh, at this particular uh, perihelion. And so uh, afterwards, though, it's going to, this is its second of these uh, at this particular orbit. And then uh, later this year, it's going to do another Venus flyby and drop in even closer to the sun. And so again, progressively getting more and more in a much tighter orbit each time, uh, or every year, it seems. And so very, very exciting stuff there. So on the following day, which is the 10th, we have the launch of an Antares 230+, plus, and that is carrying the Cygnus CRS-2 or NG-16, which is the Northrop Grumman 16, since this is the 16th planned flight for the Cygnus spacecraft, at least for commercial resupply. This particular one is named after American astronaut Ellison Onizuka, who died in the destruction of the Space Shuttle Challenger. So in memory of him, and uh, yeah, they've done, you know, like obviously they do with every spacecraft they name it after someone uh, some important person in spaceflight so that's pretty cool mm. yep so that's on the 10th at 2156 utc so what is that that's like basically 10 o'clock utc which is basically 6 p.m on the east coast um, and that's launching from wallops in virginia from pad launch area 0a so that'll be easy to watch. And, you know, it's, it's always a good opportunity for people who live on the East Coast, but not in Florida, that maybe you can see this. Mm. So, you know, if you're in like the Carolinas or Virginia, D.C., even, I guess, New York, or actually, I guess all along the Eastern Seaboard heading north, right? Because it's going to mm. be launching at, you know, that inclination to where you can probably see it, I'm guessing. And my folks in New Jersey one time said that the news was reporting that they might be able to see a launch, but of course it was clouded out. And so it, oh, was, yeah. it was a wallops launch. So, yeah. So, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And with that, it's time to deal with the show. So, we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. And a special thanks to a huge crew that we had mm-hmm. during today's show. We had Chris, a.k.a. Sty Garfield. We had Ben. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, counts. He's, yeah, he's lurking. Thanks for yeah. coming in, Ben. Yeah. Uh, we also have the Wonder Idiot, uh, Dave M., uh, Colin, uh, James Sutherland, uh, Stanley Foyot, 
Bensus and Delta P. Big crew there. All right. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check out our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. And that's it. So we will see you next time on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.